Hello friends, this is the voice of Jacob, your co-host. I just wanted to come in here at the beginning of the podcast to let you know that my audio is a little wonky this week. I tried a new setup, tried to uh, fix some of my audio problems, and uh, ended up making them worse. So my audio sounds a little weird, and I appreciate if you uh, if you can stand to listen to that. It's not all that bad, but I do sound a little off. I just thought I'd let you know. So without further ado, here is episode 32 of the Split Take Podcast. It's another week. Unfortunately. This has been a strange week all around for me. Oh, it's been just been a, re- a regular week here, but go on. I don't know. The, so where I work, there is a kindergarten mm-hmm. and there's a gym. So it's a community center. And the kindergarten has been kept completely separate uh, separate from the rest of the building. So someone in there got COVID. Oh. And so the kindergarten has just shut down. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the building can keep on operating because they've been kept separate. Yeah. Except, as the photographer, I am the link between these two separate halves. <laughs> And but I only went in there once, and it wasn't with contact with the the two teachers that tested. Those two teachers, so, fingers crossed. Okay, yeah, I think so. Well, videography aside, or photography aside from the actual picture taking, is a pretty easy job to do at home. I'm just happy that I finally found a mask that fits my face, like like one of the nice ones, not a disposable one, you know, one that I keep it hung up in my car. It's nice. Oh, you're one of, one of those yeah. People. Well. Just do you you don't wear it in the car, no, do you? No. Oh. Sometimes I I'll forget that I have it on when I drive because it's very comfortable. It's very comfortable. But I was getting tired. That's understandable if you yeah. forget. Well, I was using disposable. But there's some ones. people that just want to wear it everywhere. Yeah. If I was young, I'd love it because I would love as like a 13 year old to wear a ninja mask in public. But as a 24 25 year old, not as much. I uh yeah I used to wear the disposable masks. Um, which sucked because I would put them on before I went I went to work and my morning breath, slightly deterred by my brushing of teeth, would uh, sort of just stain that uh, mask. So then when I put it on later in the day, I was just it was gross. But this one completely fine. Hmm. Very snug. So I take it that we've both been very busy movie wise, or at least you have something to share. I do. Um. I mean, as far as movie goes, and casual aside from the podcast ones this week i watched rewatched hail caesar still funny um with her tours yeah that's one of the funniest scenes ever i refuse to believe otherwise it's just oh no it is it's just so goofy i love it um i but i have been watching uh tatami galaxy it's called the tatami galaxy Mm. and i waited until now to tell you this because it's strange um, it is by the, the whose name I forget. I don't know his name, but he's an animation director who did Night of Short Walk On Girl, which is one of my favorite movies ever. And he did an anime series using a lot of the same characters from Night of Short Walk On Girl. Like the the Tashira Mifune guy. Like actual characters. Actual characters. Really? I don't know if they're the same uh-huh. names, but they look the exact same. Like you have the Tashira Mifune guy. You have uh, the lead guy from Night is Short. You have the weird guy who's the demon of the used book uh, fairs. I was just about yeah, to he's ask. Yeah, he's in it. He's the main antagonist in it. Um, I'm going to rewatch Night is Short when I'm done with this just to see how it all ties because I think they're all the same character. Um, but it is 
I went into it thinking it was going to be Night is Short, the show, which it is and it isn't, because animation-wise, it is the same. It's the same style, it's the same ridiculousness, but the premise of it is actually kind of odd. It is about a guy at the beginning of the show who feels as if he is aimless. He's in his third year of college, and he feels like he should have done it all differently. So he talks to some witch who allows him to reverse time to the beginning of college, and this is how the show works. At the beginning of every episode, he chooses a new path to go down in college, like he joins a new college club, and he fucks it up over the course of two years, and at the end of the episode, he goes back three years before. So each episode... Or, like, years of college. Yes. So what happens is in the first episode, he realizes, I've wasted, I haven't had, and he quote, he keeps calling it the rose-tinted college years. He has no friends, he hasn't really done much, he doesn't have a love interest, so he talks to this witch, sends him back a year, and the, in the first episode, he joins a tennis club. Then he fucks up in the tennis club and becomes a super hardcore tennis player with no friends, and then at the end of the episode, he goes all the way back to the beginning of college. Uh, and it's strange, and the first episode's kind of weird because this character talks really fast. So you need to be able to read really fast. But the first episode was okay, and I was kind of worried because I thought, eh, this isn't that great. It's not Night is Short the movie. Mm. But the second episode, I'm just going to detail it for you real quick. He goes all the way back in time, and he decides to join a movie club where you make movies with other students. And the guy who runs the movie club is a super jock douchebag who's in like his seventh year of college just making these movies and he's completely taken over the movie club. And he doesn't like the, the main guy. So he makes the main guy be the PA on everything, but he's doing all of the dirty work, like literally laundry, coffee runs, stuff like that. And he doesn't get to do anything creative. So he decides to make his own movies, but then they suck. And he makes it with the used book fair demon guy. And then he realizes that the only way he's going to make a good movie is if he makes a documentary exposing the jock leader of the movie club. So he sets up cameras all around this guy's life to secretly document his life so he can use it in a documentary to expose him. And through these cameras, he learns that the the movie jock guy is exploiting the actresses by making them put their breasts in like this weird breast guillotine thing where you separate the entire body except for the breasts. And there's like these two little holes that he puts them through. And then he takes a picture of them and then he makes molds of the breasts to make a rock climbing wall that he cr climbs on top of. But then he also oh, takes the molds of the breasts to make into rubber nipples for baby bottles because he has a weird baby fetish. It's super weird. But the end of the episode... Well, you'd expect nothing <laughs> less from a Japanese anime. You really would. And at the end of the episode, um, everyone thinks he's a dick because you're like, oh, you just wrote a hit piece on this guy because you don't like him and now everybody hates him. So he's like, oh, I fucked up being a movie guy. So then he gets sent back three years and the next episode goes on. And I've only, I'm only a few episodes into it, but from what I've heard, the formula changes and recontextualizes everything in the last few episodes. So I'm excited for that, but it's been a fun ride. I watch it right before bed, and I wake up thinking, was what I saw real? Because it's all very strange. Well, I'm partially disappointed you you just skipped over Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. But I will. I will get to it afterwards. Did you, did you ever finish uh, Samurai Champloo? No, I haven't. Mm. I'm doing a new thing where I watch anime right before bed, because nighttime anime is a different feel. So after I do this, I'm going to finish Samurai Shampoo, and then I'm going to do a Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. Scout's Honor. Very good. I'll hold you to Jay, it. Jay, ask Brandon Sanju. Scout's Honor made me watch Hereditary, which I also watched, but we don't need to talk about Hereditary. No. no. Um, 
I suppose I watched quite uh, a bit as I usually do, but what I particularly like to, to mention is I watched uh, five movies. Five. Actually, we, we should celebrate, get your, your okay. beer ready, and a toast to 100 Japanese movies watched. You? So, oh, wow. Yes. And I'm not talking anime. There's a separate list for anime. Oh, no. These are live-action Japanese movies watched. This year or in general? In general. I'm surprised it's not higher. That... <laughs> I... There's... So I have a list on Letterboxd. So it's like Japanese movies watched, and that's how I keep track of this, this uh, count. And I actually wrote on there that as I approach 100, I just keep thinking, that's not enough. And this driving desire to keep watching more. Yeah. And I mean that that's just my general philosophy when it comes to all movies. Yeah, that's true. But in particular, that's like true. when you really think about it, like a hundred movies doesn't sound like all that much. But I've been keeping track of all the other movies I watch from foreign countries. And most countries like Germany, Italy, China, uh, all these different places, I've only watched like twenty five movies and mostly less from these places. Yeah. Which is actually quite a bit compared to most average people, but yeah. still, it seems like a small amount. And the only other one that is actually a sizable number is I think I've watched over 50 French movies. They do have a lot of and movies. That's the only other country. Yeah. Yeah. French and Japan, uh, France and Japan are the only two countries that I've watched stuff in a lot. Stuff. Mm-hmm. But in particular, what I watched to throw me over 100 is I watched Kinji Fukasaku, his Battles Without Honor and Humanity series which is a Yakuza uh, film series, five movies, based on articles, so based on actual events, not real, but based on mm-hmm. them, and they were great. All five? All five. Oh, wow. And don't you have Yakuza I law? do have Yakuza law. I'm, gonna, I'm probably going to watch a few more Yakuza movies. I want to see more Yakuza movies. A, a bender for those, that genre. Yakuza... My only experience with Yakuza is um, there's a game series called Yakuza, and it's very funny. We, which we've yes, talked we have, about. and it made me really interested in in just the sort of po- politics of being in the Yakuza. And I haven't found a lot of good movies that cover that, so I'm actually going to give this a watch because I'm curious now. Battles without honor and humanity. That's like all it is. It's about like the minutia of. The, the honor, the very specific honor code of the Yakuza and how that makes them like twist and contort into these odd situations and like manipulating each other based on mm-hmm. that. And the fact that the Yakuza's have like sworn brothers and they like chop off their pinkies and, and to apologize yeah, for things. Yeah, happened in the game. And then... Wait, did you buy the arrow box get, like, set? They're upset. Did you what? buy the arrow box set? I didn't. Because it's a limited edition, oh. and it frustrates me so oh. much because I looked it up, and it's $500 or oh, more God. to get a copy. Where did you now. watch this? And I'm considering it. <laughs> That's... But then, no, they're all, I've realized, and I'll send you uh, a few suggestions. There are so many Yakuza movies on Amazon Prime. Really? Oh, okay. More, like, this series, a few more by Kinji Fukasaku, and others. I think a lot of Arrow movies are just on Amazon Prime. That makes in sense. General. There's a lot of trash on Amazon Prime. Here's the interesting, the other interesting, really notable thing about the the series is that I wouldn't necessarily say that any of them 
are better than four stars. Yeah. They're like three and a half, four stars. But as like a collective whole, mm-hmm. I think I'd give like the entire five movies four and a half stars. So it's kind of like Lord of the Rings, where you may not exactly think Two Towers is an amazing movie, but put it all to, well, maybe not. I don't know. But yeah, I, I guess. But it's not, it's not necessarily even like the full picture. Like when I got to the end, I was like, I wasn't like blown away by, oh, it was planned out from the beginning. Yeah. It just was like a really immersive experience into like Japanese Yakuza after World War Two. Okay. And the other really fun thing about it is it's got one piece of music of score, which surprisingly never gets old. He, they just and keep using it a bunch? Like three or four oh, very God. like slight variations on it. But imagine it's like there's like a Yakuza theme music. And there's just someone like waiting in the editing room where like anything <laughs> like badass Yakuza thing happens, press the button <laughs> and it plays it again. Well, it's kind of like Tokyo Drifter. Although he sings his yes, own it, song. So it's a little bit. I wonder. Oh, Tokyo Drifter. His movies are very well. They're not they're not really like steeped in the the tradition of the Yakuza. It's mainly mm-hmm. just an excuse to do stuff. But those are good ones, too. Branded to Kill and Tokyo Drifter. But these are very, like, down-to-earth, gritty. Okay. Then, yeah, it's very, they're almost, like, doc. They're not docu- they're docu-esque, where just, like, the camera is just there, handheld for a lot of it, and just kind of, like, following like action. the French connection. And it's re- super hard to follow in the beginning. Oh, no. And it took me till the fourth movie oh, God. to really figure out, get a good grasp on, like, who people were. Oh, so this is all... Are these movies connected? Yes, they're all okay. a series. I, it's following one Yakuza specifically, um, but they kind of shift focus. Like, the second one is about a friend of that Yakuza and his story. Yeah, okay. And he's in the background, and the last one is... St- anyway, but I would really recommend it if you're into Yakuza. It was just a very interesting series about, like, the minutia and, like, the, well, the honor of the Yakuza. And then it's just really interestingly put together like it's not i can't really think of a movie that is like it like put together like it's somewhere in between um cure like the visual style of cure okay. with the kind of frenetic camera work of the safty brothers oh no i love that <laughs> that's an amazing so that's an amazing combination it is hmm. I I always wondered why the Yakuza genre didn't take off like the American Mafia genre did. Did I think it did. I mean, in Japan, but that's, not necessarily that's true. here. That's true. So. But even, even you know, even in Japanese film history, you don't have any Godfather-type movies. It's almost like Yakuza movies are reserved for the B-movie world. I think the Yakuza movies and the directors of them kind of get the short end of the stick mm-hmm. because you have Kurosawa, Ozu, and Mizuguchi. And they're so big yeah. in the lore of cinema that any other Japanese directors kind of get, you have to dig for them. Yeah. Not because they're any necessarily any less good or any less well-renowned. Like even Koreeda. Cinema. Even that, like you have to be people with passing knowledge of Japanese cinema. Yeah. Probably don't know who Koreeda is. No. But they do know who kurosawa is everyone knows that's just general film knowledge there yeah so kind of overshadows a lot of the other smaller directors which i am i think i'm getting to the point where i've seen a lot of the other 
the big filmographies of Japanese cinema mm-hmm. that can start like really diving into the the small, more interesting, more kind of like niche yakuza genres and other mm-hmm. other movies. Mm-hmm. That's gonna it's gonna be fun. There's a lot more on on Amazon Prime I'm gonna explore. So oh, very nice. Well, speaking of country specific films, we did watch a movie this week that was sort of an impromptu movie. Yes, and yet again, <laughs> we have. A double feature that I think is very interesting. Really? And that... Okay. Yeah. And I'm going to talk about this at the end of... When we talk about Husbands. And I think, like, I would recommend these two as, like, an actual double feature. Interesting. And I'll tell you why later. Okay. The first movie that we're discussing today is Mike Lee's 1993 movie, Naked, starring David Thewlis and a bunch of other English people. Although no one's as neat as David Thewlis. It is about a... Very well-educated, but very poor-mannered, to say the least. Uh, Drifter in London, England, as he just sort of uh, just has conversations, really. All he's really looking for is a place to stay. Kind of. Kind of. Because <laughs> he kind of has a place to stay. But doesn't want it. I don't. Well, I don't want to get into spoilers, because that's just at the, you know, his... The central character is kind of an enigma in a way. <laughs> part part of me likes to think, okay, this is the VM Varga origin story. I could see it. Yeah, <laughs> like that's not out of the realm of possibility here. VM Varga, for those who don't know, is the villain in Fargo season three. Also and played by David Thewlis, who is yes. my favorite character of the to, entire show. But continue. To be fair, put uh, David Thewlis on the map essentially. I, made him into a star. I have had a very weird, like, working backwards of David Thewlis, because I didn't wasn't even aware of who he was, really, until Fargo. And then I sort of mm. made my way backwards, where I'm like, oh my god, he's the, he's the voice in Anomalisa. Oh, he's in Harry Potter, apparently. And then I literally went for this movie because I like David Thewlis so much. Because I've also, coincidentally, been rewatching season three of Fargo. So then I thought, oh, this movie looks good. It's on the Criterion channel. Uh, it's got David Thewlis. It's a dark comedy. I'll watch it. And wow, it is. It's out there. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll come back to that. I thought, didn't he make at one point a reference to um, werewolves in this film? Honestly, this this movie, as I far as dialogue it specifically goes, and, it goes so fast. And I thought I to know. myself, well, that's perfect because he plays Lupin later on in uh harry potter. harry potter yeah which i not werewolves were mentioned and lupus in particular the yeah the Latin i'm thing. unaware of his role in harry potter i've only seen the first three in the last two harry potter movies well he's in the, the third one. Oh well shit <laughs> it's okay i never recognized him i think i had a very similar experience with you as you did where i really noticed him as an actor in fargo season three and then kind of worked backwards and like oh Harry Potter. He's he's very diverse. He's a character actor. Yeah, and I can't say I've say, seen much with him in it. Same. But. Well, this is the thing is I've also coincidentally been really wanting to get into Mike Lee as of late. Yes, because he's an there interesting. Was actually, guy. I just got a notification as we started this on YouTube mm-hmm. of Criterion published a trailer for Mike Lee on the Criterion channel. Yeah, he's got a few movies, and coming. I know they uploaded a bunch of his movies, mm-hmm. so. Very English director. Uh, I think I'm going to be checking out a few more. 
Um, he's he's very much an English director. He makes movies about English people and English society and how English society affects English people, typically the middle class. And I just thought it was interesting that he, as far as I know, is not on this list at all in any fashion. No. Um, and this is his most well-known movie. And also seems to be kind of an outlier in the rest of his movies. Because as far as I know, there's not a lot of his movies that get this dark. Yeah, that's. I think he also. So I was listening a little bit to the commentary, mm-hmm. and uh, I, more and more recently, whenever we watch a movie that has commentary on it, I just try to listen to it. Usually, it's in the background, just as like a podcast kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. But I was listening to it, and I think he explicitly states in that commentary himself mm-hmm. that this is an outlier in his own filmography. And as someone who's never seen a Mike Lee film beyond this, that's interesting to hear, and I'd be very curious to see like what else. <laughs> Has he done, and how does it relate to this in terms of well, there, like direction, there is, style, and all that? There is a movie he did. I don't remember the name of it, but it's also as on the Criterion Channel as part of this uh, uh, greatest hits or whatever. And it is a movie with Sally Hawkins, who plays a, a like a kindergarten teacher, and it's like the complete opposite of this movie, where it's very happy and wholesome. So maybe that would be a huh. good double pairing or double feature. Mike Lee is. Uh... Yet another surprise Jew in the film industry. <laughs> you see his Criterion Closet video? I I probably have. I've seen a lot of them, but I don't remember. He's a lovely man, very lovely man. I got that sense on the 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 commentary, and as we get deeper into this discussion, there's some very interesting things directorial wise on that commentary that I'd like to to talk about on this film. Yeah, so Naked was. It's such an interesting experience because it's not really like a lot of other movies. No. It, as you said, it's very dark. Very. It, it literally starts with rape. It starts with rape. And it's your main character. And you don't hate him by the end of it. It's it's a process of learning that there are worse people out there's there. There's so and I think much that's worse. There's there's this side story of Sebastian in this film where you have your main character who's Johnny, and it begins with rape, and then he flees Manchester and drives to London to his old girlfriend's place. And that's how you're introduced to this character. Not not exactly a heartwarming no. uh, introduction. No. But then you have another character who is kind of a parallel story who we see very infrequently until the last third of the film. And it's Jeremy slash Sebastian, mm-hmm. who is just this utter sadist when it comes to his life and sex life in particular and it's kind of like this thing of where the movie is like johnny's bad but he's lost (laughs) look at this guy who's just (laughs) fucked up yeah could be worse but the thing is that it's it's surprising i think it mainly has to do with the the dialogue and the acting how likable the character is after you've literally introduced him raping someone. Because David Thewlis is great in this movie. It's a great performance. I was only... There's a time when he's, like, writhing on the floor near... The end? He's gotten, like, beat up. Yeah. He's kind of, like, writhing on the floor. He's like, oh, this is a little much. Mm -hmm. Other than that, I thought, like, the the performance was just absolutely phenomenal the entire way through. Yeah, and a huge... This movie is just so... It would be an amazing movie to read because it's nothing but yes. insanely witty conversations 
deep philosophies and this entire movie is just capital m miserable everything about this movie is miserable but not in a way Which that's is, overbearing you know, if you're setting a miserable movie somewhere it's got to be london covered in fog yes. and night so this movie to me it just is about misery and how other people deal with misery nobody is loved in this movie <laughs> nobody it's kind of also it, so it's about misery and in particular as a result of lacking any kind of grounding mm-hmm. in this world of you have this you have Johnny and his old girlfriend Sophie I believe or is was it No Sophie's the one who comes back from Africa I think Louis Louis Yes I don't know. Yes they're both from Manchester and they're in London now and they're feeling kind of adrift Johnny is is out of work and is just kind of wandering around fig- trying to figure out what to do. And he's not even like necessarily trying to figure out what to do. He's just he's trying to questioning. Live. It's a very existential film, and he's a very existential character mm-hmm. who's trying to come to terms with what's going on around him and where does he fit into it. Yeah. Particularly in like a lot of the scenes with the the night security guard. Of where That's my favorite part of the movie. get a lot of his philosophy. That's, yes. <laughs> yes. I can yes. watch an entire movie of just that. But it's, you know, London, it's it's this cold, drab place. And there's a beauty to that for an outsider. But for them, you kind of get the sense that no one is where they want to be. Yeah. Or they're not even sure where they want to be. Because the thing is, what makes Johnny a great character and great in comparison to all these other, other characters is that Johnny understands his misery better than anyone. Johnny is one of those cases where he is just, he's too knowledgeable. He's too smart to the point where he can see through everything. He can see through your day-to-day nine-to-five job. He can see through the falsities of like uh, English society and what everybody's working towards. He sees through love. He sees through everything to the point where he is so detached from his own humanity because he can look at it from this weird objective point that he doesn't want to have a connection with anybody. And when it's sometimes he catches himself, like towards the end, which we'll get to, having that connection, he sort of sabotages it, which is, I think, why he feels enigmatic. Yeah, because he's, you would think that as a character his goal is to kind of find that grounding Mm -hmm. but as the movie goes on you kind of understand that he's not looking to to find any firm ground to stand on maybe there isn't any firm ground to stand on for someone like him he's truly aimless in the sense that he really doesn't want anything doesn't want anybody doesn't want anything he's just trying to live and not die even that is debatable yeah it's it his philosophy and like how he comes off it's it i think it seems very intelligent and learned and kind of philosophical but i think there's also a lot of bullshit there yeah he's a con man he just as much as anyone is deluding himself he's just thinking he's figured it all out and like he he talks about like the future and the apocalypse and 666 and barcodes and <laughs> all of this stuff and he has just as much problems with stuff that isn't there that is kind of made up these phantoms these greater forces in the world Mm -hmm. that 
perhaps maybe he puts the blame on for where he's at mm-hmm. or maybe not. Cause we're never given, we, he just appears in the film where the camera rushes towards him in the very first shot. And then he just kind of walks off at the end. And it's, it's almost like a stranger in the night or yeah. ships passing in the night where he just, we don't know much about who he was before we get like hints of it. He's from Manchester. We get hints of who his mother might be here and there, little dabbles of that. But other than that, you don't get much like grounding of like what he wants, where he's trying to go. None of that. You just get more of like him being him just existing in London and interacting with all these people, Mm -hmm. which was surprisingly engaging for me because I'm not always, it's very hard to get me to engage in just kind of, plotless movies of just hanging out because that's what it is well i think a huge part of that is just how very i don't even want to say witty how just how literary the dialogue is he is non-stop like philosophy he's non-stop poetry he's just he's very quotable and the people around There's him, references all over the place yeah and i think that is part of what texts. makes it but I also think that every performance in this is pretty solid and strange in their own way. Um, yeah, like I said, the, the security guard part is my favorite part. It was it was like ten or twenty minutes, and I could have watched a whole hour. Um, the that's where like the the only time there's a genuine kind of connection between characters in the film. Yes, well, because they're completely different ideologies, completely different outlooks on life, and one's trying to convince one of the other, sort of. Um, but there's there's a lot of darkness in this, and I'm I'm still both literal and yes, well definitely literal because the movie just looks like a a chain smoking nightmare. Um, everything's dirty and grimy, and it's even in the daytime it's dark because it's cloudy. And the thing is, there's like a a blue filter over everything. Oh and in the very first scene, it's like hard to figure out what's going on mm-hmm. because it's just so he's not afraid to leave things in shadow yeah. for a lot of the shots. Which and it's insanely like what the funniest part to me for some reason was he had this scene at the end. I don't know if this is a spoiler. They sing a song. That's not really a spoiler. Okay. I'm not sure you. I'm not sure this is a. This is another example of a film that you, it's not really possible to spoil. Yeah, because the ending. There's not much that happens near the end. No. It's cyclical. But there is some form of resolution. Yeah. And that's all I'm going to say. Well, Let's at the continue. end of the, uh, towards the end of the movie, you have um, uh, Johnny and his ex-girlfriend singing a song about Manchester, which is where they're both from. And even the song about Manchester is talking about how it's gloomy there all the time. And there's nothing to do. I'm like, this is the thing you want to go back to? And it sounds horrible. Well, yeah, but it's also, um, the more I get older, the more I understand that everyone unless you're from new york or la everyone where regardless of where you grew up Mm -hmm. says their hometown is boring there's nothing to do and they want to get out yeah if if you grew up in a city yeah and if you grew up in a small town sometimes people like to stay there but Mm -hmm. it's a pretty common feeling that people have an attachment to their hometown but also are kind of get tired of it eventually yeah and i so it's not necessarily that Manchester has nothing to do, but rather that. But maybe it does. They're they're in this. They're in their twenties, mm-hmm. their late twenties, and they're they're trying to get out. Yeah, it's just you know it's um I don't know because I'm still struggling. I don't understand why 
this movie isn't as depressing as it actually is. I think just because it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> it it's a very dry, very. dry as dry can be British humor. It is, and and it's like one of the most British movies I've ever seen in that sense. But I think there are genuine moments of connection that when they finally break through, it's actually kind of nice to see. And you really don't get that until, I would say, about the security guard is when you really start to see it. But towards the end, with Johnny and his ex-girlfriend making the plans, I think you also get that. Um, But, I don't know, these characters are mean and horrible, but they're not super mean and horrible to each other, except for the landlord, who is like an English version of Frank Booth. He's just gross. And the movie makes some very interesting parallels between these two characters, and I'm not entirely sure the reasoning yet. They kind of seem to be two sides of the same coin. Yeah. It... Oh. <laughs> I feel like Mike. Yet another place where notes have been taken. Mike Staclasa here with his printed out paper. Uh, what were we talking about? Talking about the parallels between the landlord and Johnny. How the two oh, sides yes, of the same thing. Mike Lee said something very specific about that that I liked. Um, and there's a lot of stuff that Mike Lee says that I'm... If, if John Cassavetes was still alive, I'd like to read to him. <laughs> uh, and I quote... Likely. For me, telling two stories at once, parallel actions, comes naturally. It's partly to do with the sense that whatever's going on in life, there's something else that relates going on somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And I like to say that in life, and this has been kind of talked about in symbol in analysis of like symbology and stuff, that anything in life, especially language and other things that are related to language, like film. You have to understand, understanding of something comes only in relationship to something else. Mm -hmm. That if you only had one thing, if you only knew one thing, you wouldn't know it as well if you didn't have everything else around it that was different from it to put it into perspective. Mm -hmm. And following these two characters, one who is clearly supposed to be, they're both bad people, but one is less bad more relatable more troubled person that that dichotomy between the two of them that comparison is part of the reason why i think johnny is relatable mm-hmm. is because the film is constantly like but here's this yeah here's this guy who you hate so the film is giving you someone to actually dislike actively dislike because if johnny was the only person who he's a rapist and that's all we had to go with. Yeah. Then he might be more of an object of dislike in the film. Yeah, it's you know you're right because now I think about it. If you didn't have that character constantly making Johnny look good by comparison, you might actually hate Johnny. You might. I think there's a, there's something else about the character and the way that the characterization is built. Yeah. That makes him interesting, and at the very least. Well, it's important to note that he's not entirely a likable character. Like, obviously, there's the the sexual violence that keeps him from being likable, but he is an, I don't even want to say a sympathetic, he's an understandable character. 
You understand mm-hmm. the way that he is, even if you don't need a complete history lesson. The little tidbits that we get, his very, very specific outlook on life kind of informs these actions, but doesn't excuse them. And I think that's what makes him a lot more well-rounded and a lot less dejectable than the other guy. The whole film is filled with this sense of empathy mm-hmm. for characters, of understanding that you you meet a lot of different women along the way that Johnny comes into contact with and understanding and the film takes a very understanding look at their kind of troubled lives mm-hmm. particularly the the cafe girl that he uh yeah. goes home with she seems very like normal grounded and then you get to learn a little bit more about her when she comes home and then the 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 woman in the window you kind of Johnny goes over to, yeah, to her yeah. place, and there's a bit of tension in that scene because you, obviously you think that oh, is Johnny gonna do some some sexual violence here, but it turns into a much more kind of like trying to figure out who they are, to yeah. understand people rather than judge them mm-hmm. for their where they are at because most people in this film are not in a good place. No, it's almost like uh, Johnny I think fetishizes his own misery, but when he sees people that are a lot more miserable than he is, it sort of inadvertently takes a lot of the value out of his own misery so he is sort of you know repellent against that like like the not only the girl that's across in the window across from the museum or whatever but also the woman with the black hair uh, who lives at his ex-girlfriend's place once he starts to really see how fucked up she is he becomes a lot less interested same with the other girl from across the window yeah but then you have his like his ex-girlfriend who is miserable but is able to block it out and sort of live with it and that's i think something that is sort of attracts johnny but then in the end when she sort of goes like full hope and understanding and have a plan i think that's what ultimately drives him away um then you have the other guy who's just horrible i don't think he even associates himself with that but it's a very interesting movie it's it's not one that is easily unpacked it is unique it's certainly David Thewis is playing one of the most interesting yeah. anti-heroes in, in cinema that because you, know, you don't usually have a character of this kind of. Well, because even the anti-hero, there is a, a good balance that typically is like 75, 25 good to bad. This guy is almost like a split 50, 50 good, bad. Yes. Anti-hero is, is a imprecise term, but the best one I have. Yeah. He is challenging you to like him. I'm not even like when I finished it, I'm not sure what I felt I still about don't the film itself. Yeah. And I still don't necessarily have a good grasp on all of it. Mm-hmm. I think it's something that as I think about it more, I'm more interested in rewatching it. I, I watched it for the first time in the Criterion channel uh, and I bought the Criterion the next day. Huh. Well, it's a film that I think is important to rewatch, but it doesn't necessarily easily invite you. I don't to want to go right it. back, no. Because <laughs> I know, but for a lot of people, it is kind. Of, it's a dark. Film. Yeah, it might, it might it might be a little much for some people. I do recommend the the commentary because it has Mike Lee, David Thewlis, and Katrin Cartledge. Cartridges. I don't know who plays Sophie, the girl. Oh, okay. So it's it's a stacked cast commentary. Mm. But there was some other stuff where the film is so there's it's so wordy and sometimes you think it's 
improv, particularly with the the Scott, the Scottish guy, yeah, who's just shouting on the street, where it just feels so like kinetic. The the friction between the two of them and the from train spotting, by the way. Yeah. Oh yeah. wow. Spud. <laughs> just as unintelligible. Uh, but the way that Mike Lee talks about like his directing style on the commentary and the way he directs is very much the script was formulated mm-hmm. from a lot of improv of where all the characters got together and they just kind of acted out <laughs> scenarios. And then Mike Lee put those scenarios together into the script. Yeah. And then on set, he would allow no no improv whatsoever. Okay. So, like, the movie starts as an improv exercise. I, I can see why you want to show this to John Cassavetes then. Moves into <laughs> something more concrete and is pinned down into a movie. Okay. And that was very interesting because I don't think I know of a lot of directors who would work in that specific way. Yeah. Lots of things that it's very, um, it's, it's a very interesting contradiction because the, the, the dialogue feels very, very written, but the performances feel very improvisational. So I think that's a very interesting way of doing it. Yes. But yeah, I like, I like that. This Mike Lee is an interesting fella. He is. Uh, the only the last thing I really want to mention that's not in my notes is that the music in the film yeah. is very interesting. And it's kind of, in the very beginning, I got this really great thematic sense from the film that the music's kind of dark and it's kind of has a beat to it, the low kind of bass mm-hmm. in the beginning. And then there's a harp that comes in. I find that very interesting that there's this, the rest of the music is very dark, but then there's this constant harp that is in harmony with it. That is, you know, there's a little, little silver lining in this music to like this. Yeah. It's very reflective. Darkness. Yeah. No, it was a, it was a very good score. Yeah. And then there's a, after he visits the woman in the window, the round window, the, the music is different. I think it's like a cello. It's a very somber note to end on which i thought was an interesting way of kind of putting punctuation on the end of that scene of like creating a different feeling because the music was specifically different from the rest of the film there not exactly sure i could comment on that or what it means or what it's trying to get at but i liked that choice because it felt appropriate to put there well you definitely was like the end of the security guard and then this woman and it's the end of the sequence. I think I actually think there's a, a bit on the Criterion version that goes into the music, so maybe that's worth looking into. But yeah, no, it's I I definitely noticed the consistency of the music. I thought it was all great, um, but I did I definitely didn't notice the instrumentation. So that you, you beat me there. But yeah, well, d- does this deserve to be on the BFI list? Oh my goodness! <laughs> oh, I don't know. Would you at least recommend it? I would recommend yeah, it. Yeah, same. It's uh, it's not exactly. Uh, don't start your day with this. <laughs> don't end your day with it. Maybe too. Maybe maybe you're still leave an some hour room or two. after you watch it. To, well, who was you know what I did? Calm down. I watched what? it and then I watched like an hour of Tommy Galaxy. Where I'm like, okay, ease myself into it, but. It's very interesting. I'm very excited. I'm going to start watching more of his movies now that they're on the Criterion channel. 
and I implore anyone to watch his uh, Criterion Closet because he's he's a charming old man. <laughs>